Hi, welcome to the Sentac Podcast. The Society for Ear, Nose, and Throat Advancement in Children is a collective group of like-minded healthcare professionals involved in the care of children with otolaryngology, hearing, speech, and swallowing disorders. We are uniquely composed of physicians and allied healthcare professionals, including otolaryngologists, pediatricians, basic scientists, audiologists, speech therapists, occupational therapists, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. My name is Javen Nation. I am the communications director for Sentac. This first season of our podcast, we will focus on having conversations with different teams and team members that provide specialized care for children. I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I'm joined by two members of the cochlear implant team, Carrie Colio and Daniela Carvajo. Carrie Colio is a pediatric audiologist at Radio Children's Hospital San Diego and serves as the cochlear implant director. She's also the chair of the Young Members Committee uh, for Sentac. Daniela Carvajo is a pediatric otolaryngologist with an expertise in otology and cochlear implantation. She is the medical director of surgical services, the director of the hearing program at Radio Children's, as well as a professor of surgery at University of California, San Diego. In addition to all these roles, Daniela Carvajo is also the current Sentac president. So Daniela, Carrie, welcome. So you're both members of the, the cochlear implant team. Tell me, when was this team founded? So our team was founded in 2003. And before that, there were like a, a group of people that would sometimes, you know, discuss the cases, but it was not a well-organized team. And we thought that we were lacking a, multi, a very organized multidisciplinary approach for our cochlear implant kiddos, you know, just not only to do the assessment, evaluate them, see if they were good candidates, but also help the parents with their expectations and plan for their rehabilitation in the future. So that's why this was created back in 2003. All right, wow. So almost 20 years, you got a uh, 20 year anniversary coming up. I know, it's super exciting. And I'll tell you, we have a lot of kiddos that are our graduates, and we're so proud of all of them. It's really terrific. It's a, it's a great growing family. Very cool. Invite we'll me have to have a, a big party next year for our 20th. Please send me the Absolutely. invite. <laughs> That'll uh, be fun. So, so Carrie, um, there's so many steps that happen for a child to get uh, implanted. Um, and we don't always understand or see all the steps. Let's start at the beginning. Can you take us what... Uh, uh, take us through the process of identifying uh, who's a cochlear implant candidate. Sure. So for babies, they typically have their newborn hearing screening before they leave the hospital, if they're born within the hospital. And if they're not, then they have the newborn hearing screening typically about a week after birth. And if they fail that newborn hearing screening, then they're referred for a more diagnostic newborn hearing screening or like an ABR, an auditory brainstem response. And then if we are able to diagnose a hearing loss at that point, depending on the severity of the hearing loss is referred to the cochlear implant team. If the hearing loss is severe or if they have auditory neuropathy, or maybe we know they have CMV or something where the hearing loss could be progressive, then we get them started within the cochlear implant process right away. 
for maybe older kids, then um, for older kids, we see them maybe because of a failed newborn hearing screening or not a failed newborn hearing screening, maybe a failed like PCP hearing screening or a failed school hearing screening, then we will just identify the hearing loss within the clinic. And we're also, we see lots of two and three-year-olds who just have speech delay. And then a lot of times those are progressive hearing losses that we're able to identify at that point. And for the babies, remind me of the timeframes. If they fail their newborn hearing screening, what's the timeframe for the diagnostic uh, ABR or BEAR? We want to make sure we have that done within one month, but really I think our timeframe at Rady Children's is more like one to two weeks because ideally they'll be diagnosed by one month and then they'll be fit with some sort of amplification by three months. All right. I think we, it's important to remind everybody about the 136 from the Joint mm-hmm. Commission of Infant, Infant Hearing. Uh, you should identify them at one month and then um, do the diagnostic by three months and do some sort of intervention by six months. And now they're pushing that to one, two, three. So. Yeah. <laughs> one, two, three. Oh, I can, I, even I can remember that. That's even better. One, two, three. Right. All right. And so, so once you have a candidate, uh, Daniela, what's, what's the medical workup uh, that you, you want uh, to obtain before implantation? You know, this is a very interesting question too, Javen. You know why? Because I'll tell you, the parents, when they come in the office to see us, your question is not really, um, what do we do? Is why does my child have hearing loss? It's really impressive. That's really what they want to know, right? So as part of the cochlear implant evaluation process, of course, we're going to be trying to uh, assess the, um, the cause of the hearing loss because it might impact on how well they do with any type of amplification or cochlear implantation and help them decide, you know, what's best for their child. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we do, of course, we evaluate the the ABR if they have neuropathy or do not have neuropathy and kind of start from there. If they are, if they have a severe to profound hearing loss, we're going to start usually with imaging. You want to assess their temporal bone anatomy. You want to assess their cochlear nerves and brain, because in some cases, if you don't have information, for example, about congenital CMV, you can at least look at the MRI and see if there's any changes. Uh, Cochlear nerve um, deficiency can also impact cochlear implantation. So we definitely want to look at that. And then if those are negative, then we will discuss doing genetics. In our case, we are able here in California the child has not had a evaluation for a CMV as soon as uh, before three weeks of age, we can actually look at their dried blood spot and send it for testing, which is not as sensitive, but it can give you an idea whether the child um, send it for PCR for a CMV. And if it's positive, then you have uh, the, it's very likely that the child had congenital CMV. And if it's early enough, we will send these kids to our infectious disease colleagues for discussion about maybe starting them on a Volga and Cyclover. I mean, this is a discussion with the family because there's a lot of studies that still need to be done about that. But if that's negative, then definitely genetics. We send them to our genetic counselors and they do a full assessment and go from there. But obviously you're gonna use your physical examination too. If the child is clearly syndromic, you're gonna be sending them straight to genetics. So it will depend on a lot of factors, but this is kind of the 
uh, overall idea of what we do when you see these kettles. Okay. So, so now we have confirmation that uh, the child's deaf or is a candidate and they have their medical workup. What happens next uh, at the team meeting care? So we actually have them go through quite a few different evaluations before the team meeting. And that includes, of course, the audiology appointments where they're fit with some type of amplification because we still want to try to work in that three-month trial period that the FDA recommends. And we also have some testing when they have their hearing aids just to see exactly how much benefit are they getting from their hearing aids. Doesn't as much, you know, matter for maybe the severe to profound kids. That's more just about keeping the nerve stimulated at that point. But for more of the maybe the neuropathy kids or the severely sloping, you know, hearing loss kids, those are the ones that we do want to see if they're getting benefit from the hearing aid and exactly how much that benefit might be. So they might have some speech therapy to work through before we discuss them as a team. And um, one really important part of our team evaluation is the developmental evaluation as well. So they see a developmental psychologist through the evaluation period who um, checks maybe on their their developmental milestones or um, just to see how you know motivated they are for cochlear implantation and if the family has a good support system or support network. So we have a lot of different things we do before that team meeting. Um, but then at the team meeting, we all get together and we're able to discuss their candidacy and provide the family with our recommendation as a team, whether, yes, we definitely think, you know, you qualify for two cochlear implants, let's move forward. Or, you know, we think you qualify for two. What do you think? Do you just want one? Do you want two? So we definitely involve the family in that discussion. And that's another opportunity for us to see if there's any difficulty for the families to access care or any barriers that they have. Could it be transportation or lodging. So that's the time when we can really brainstorm together as a team to help the family out. So who are all the disciplines that are part of the team? So we have the developmental psychologist. We have, of course, the audiologist and the surgeon or ENT. And we have the speech language pathologist, and we're very lucky to have some auditory verbal, verbal therapist or AVTs on our team. And we also have, we have a social worker now who she, um, she prefers to be called the DHH or deaf and hard of hearing family support specialist because I, and I totally agree with her. Some families just get a little nervous when you tell them, oh, we have a social worker, you know, that you're going to talk to. So she's been a wonderful addition to our team. We also have a cochlear implant research analyst position that is now filled. It's been less than a year now, but that's been a really great opportunity for us too, to have some research involvement as a cochlear implant team. And I think that's it. Daniela, don't let me miss anybody. Yeah, no. Well, and also I think, you know, uh, the person who does the the research, she's also the mother of a child with Mm -hmm. hearing loss. So she also helps us as an educational liaison. So we, we want to have that kind of connection um, with the, the school system and the educational system so we know exactly how we can also help that child in the future in that regard. So yeah, I think you got everything, Carrie. 
Wow. We're very lucky to have a well-rounded team. Right. And also, I just wanted to mention, which uh, we have uh, modified what we call the chip score, the which is a scoring system to basically organize all these people. Can you imagine? Lots of girls in the same room. That would be a little crazy, right? <laughs> so, yeah, you need to have it's some sort of Right, right, exactly. So we organize ourselves uh, through that uh, chip score system, which is very helpful also for us to when you have just one glimpse at it, you have an idea about the child, you can kind of understand how well, if, if the child is truly a good candidate, first of all, and help with the expectations and planning. So all of us will look at it and say, you know, we need to help the family with ABC or whatever it is and give them the best potential to reach the best outcome. So I, I really like that. And actually, in fact, here in California, all the medic, uh, Medicaid centers, which is what we call the CCS here, use the system that we have created. So we're very proud of that. So, so tell me more about that. Is this a, an organized algorithm that you work through where each person has a time to, to speak up and, and advocate? That's actually, it's a scoring system. So each specialty has certain items that you need to score and explain why you're giving the child a certain score. So it's from zero to five, zero being no concerns at all and five being extreme concerns. Usually if you have one five there, wherever it is, it's not a good sign. Um, And then we add that. In the past, we used to uh, correlate that with the OSPLAN, which is like the auditory and speech um, uh, outcomes. And we kind of stopped doing that because I think, you know, of course, the, the higher the score, the more concerns you have. But a lot of times we these are concerns that you, we are able to manage. So that it's been kind of evolving, but it's extremely it's an extremely helpful tool to organize our thoughts and uh, and be able to present that to the insurance companies, for example, in a very organized manner and expedite also, I think, the uh, uh, authorization process, which is not a conversation. But yes, um, it's 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 something that we're we're proud of it. So right, Carrie. Yes, very proud of it. And it's the CHIP stands for the Children's Implant Profile. And for example, like a score within the audiology section would be, does the child have auditory deprivation? And maybe if they have 10 plus years of not wearing a device, but they've had hearing loss, we would say, well, that's a great concern. Um, But then, you know, that doesn't but that doesn't mean they don't get a cochlear implant. That just means maybe we'll discuss more realistic expectations with the family. So Carrie, from an audiologic perspective, are there any factors that are more important to you uh, at this portion, at this part of the uh, the team meeting or the, uh, the process of uh, making them a candidate? Yeah, I think the main thing for um, audiology that I think about that, you know, is not as straightforward as the typical sensory neural hearing loss are the neuropathy kids. Because typically we look at an audiogram and we say, yes, they're a candidate. But for neuropathy kids, they may have a normal audiogram or a mild hearing loss, but then, you know, their speech perception is terrible. So I think that really gives us an opportunity as a team, especially when we're able to talk about 
how are they doing in speech therapy? Are they getting any benefit at all, whether it's with hearing aids, without hearing aids? And most of the time for the neuropathy kids, they're not. So then that makes them a candidate. So that's something where you can't just look at paper for these kids because they might look like they're not a candidate. But then if you really talk about it as a team, then you realize that they are a candidate and we need to move pretty quickly. So the neuropathy cases are the ones that, you know, you have to think out of the box a little bit, in my opinion. <laughs> I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. And then Daniela, from, from the surgeon perspective, what factors are most important to you? Well, of course you want everybody to have a normal anatomy, right? That's not the case. And uh, um, when it's not, I mean, things have been changing quite a bit, I think, Javen. So in the past, if we saw kids with a deficient cochlear nerve, that would be a, uh, a blatant no right off the bat, right, Carrie? So things have changed. We know now that uh, a lot of times MRIs are not absolutely perfect in assessing these uh, cochlear nerves. So if the audiologists are able to get a little bit different information than what we're getting in MRI, that is taking into account. We also take into account the family's expectations. So we will tell them, okay, there's a good chance your, your child might be able to have some um, sound perception, sound awareness, which might be great for uh, safety reasons. And, uh, and the family understands that. And a lot of times they actually develop some um some speech it's it's very fascinating so there are a lot of new studies coming out and uh so these are these kiddos are not uh not considered candidates right so they will be assessed individually and looked as a whole and i think that's again why it's such an important thing to have a team to look at all the different perspectives and not only that so these families are just so new to all of this. It's such a hard thing for them a lot of times that the more they, they're able to understand, discuss all the different um, aspects of hearing loss for their child, they can make a better decision. They feel supported, which is very important. And we give them all the tools, not just with the team, but also with the community and who to talk to, other families. And and feeling like you're part of something is very, very uh, important for them. So we, we, we really like this about the team as well. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so let's move ahead. So now they're a candidate and they get implanted. Uh, when, when do you try and get the implant done by? What, what's your time period for that? Well, it's, it, we don't have a one size fits all, but if you have a child with bilateral profound hearing loss, we want to be, we want to implant them around six months of age. FDA approved nine months, but we have seen in all the cases that we do, these are all outpatient cases, all bilateral simultaneous cochlear implants done at six months of age. If you have a healthy child with no medical contraindications, they do very well. Um, post-operatively, and the complications are really not greater than um, older kids. So I think six months pretty safe. You have, because you have time to make the right diagnosis, you do not want to commit the perfect sin, as I like to call it, you know, of implanting a child that's not a candidate, right? And, um, and you give them the best opportunity to have access to sound soon enough. And for older kids, it will depend when, you know, um, if their hearing progresses, they're not good candidates. We're going to be assessing them and trying to implant them sooner than rather than later, right? 
And for auditory neuropathy kids, like Carrie was mentioning, that's a tricky thing because we need to make sure that that is the right decision for them. And that's why it's auditory neuropathy spectrum disorder, right? So that's a different, that would be a whole new podcast for you right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Future talk. Um, or upcoming webinar. There you go. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> wow. So it's six months now. That's incredible. When I was a fellow, it was, it was one year and now it's six months. Very cool. Okay. So the implants in, um, Carrie, tell me, tell me about your role. So once the implants in, tell me, tell me the next step for you. So for audiology at Rady, we have been trying to do the activation in a week from when the implant actually goes in. So we're just going actually, a week post that, Tell me, tell me okay. about the neural response telemetry. Oh, sure. So um, during the surgery, an audiologist will remote into the OR computer, which has been really a game changer for us, which now I guess we've been doing that for over five years. And it's been really nice. So we um, usually get paged by someone on the surgical team that, hey, we're almost ready for you. Do you want to get set up? So then we, you know, stop what we're doing, go to our computer, log in to remotely to the OR computer. And then we work with the surgical team to get everything connected. They have a little box for each company and it's just connecting a, a couple of cables and then popping the magnet on the patient's head. And then we're able to do everything just as if we were in the OR. So we just don't have to tote a huge laptop over there anymore, which is really nice. So when we do that, the first thing we always do is we measure impedances. So that's just looking for if there's any like short circuits, open circuits, or any like high impedances, really anything that looks abnormal. And then that would give the surgeon an idea of like, well, what's going on? Or, you know, maybe let's stop right now and do an x-ray, you know, anything like that can pop up. But if impedances look perfect, then we move right ahead and we go to the neural response telemetry or the different companies call it different things, but it's the electrical compound action potential. And it is looking for the nerves response to electrical stimulation. So what we do is we measure it for every single electrode. And oh, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. I hope that you guys can't hear the, the test. Yeah. Tested. Okay. Okay. So sorry. Um, so what we do is we look for every single electrode and we provide electrical stimulation and then it stops and move, the computer stops and moves on to the next electrode whenever you're able to see a response. So the nerve responding to that sound and we can sit there and watch it, you know, on the OR computer and it just shows up exactly as that electrical compound action potential, the nice waveform. So once we get all of those and for cochlear, you know, it'd be 22 electrodes. So, and each company is a little bit different, but then that gives us a nice idea too, using it later on, if we need to use maybe the, those responses for um, how to fit the first program. So that that helps us a lot. And then sometimes like with neuropathy kids, you don't know if you're going to get all those neural responses. So too, it gives you a good idea of maybe um, where, how much do you need to stimulate to that nerve electrically or, you know, it gives you an idea of how to move forward with the cochlear implant after um, it's implanted. And then take us to the next step. Tell us about activation. Yeah. So activations are my favorite appointments. That's why I'm an audiologist. <laughs> um, that it's so much fun. We, um, 
for the first part is a little bit boring. We always tell the families like bring snacks or, you know, your computer or whatever to keep, you know, your kids entertained because sometimes we do do all of that neural response telemetry once again. And we're in the OR, we're just kind of blasting it and looking for a response where we do it postoperatively. We're looking for that threshold of sound where the minimum electrical stimulation it takes when we see that neural response. So it does take a little longer if we do it postoperatively. And um, so for babies that can't tell us, you know, yes, I hear a beeping sound. We oftentimes will repeat that testing and it can take up to 30 minutes. So we just try to keep the kids entertained while we do that. And then that gives us a great idea of where to put the map. If they don't tolerate that, then we can at least use the intraoperative ones as well. And for older kids, we can ask them um, if they hear a sound, you know, raise your hand. It's kind of like a hearing test. And that gives us a really good idea of where to set their threshold levels. And then we can ask them to tell us, you know, what sounds are most comfortable and we can kind of work our way up and that gives us a great idea of where to put maybe their their upper levels. So then we have a little bit of window of sound. Um, so when we turn it on and we do the actual activation, then they hear something and that's always very exciting. We usually turn it way down at the beginning just so it's not too much too fast because a lot of these kids, they've never heard sound before and it can be pretty scary. So um, we always tell parents and we prepare families like it's not always the YouTube reaction <laughs> that they're looking for, but we tell them any reaction is a good reaction because that means it's working and they're hearing sound. So some kids are a little bit nervous or shy or cuddly or, and then some kids do have those fun YouTube exciting reactions. So it varies, but any reaction, of course, is a good reaction. And then after that, we just let them, you know, relax and play and we make sure everything, they're comfortable with the sound. And then we go through all of their equipment. So if they get bilateral cochlear implants, then they typically have four backpacks worth of equipment to go through. So that takes up probably the majority of the appointment is just learning about the equipment and how to get through that first week. That's so cool. What a, what a wonderful moment. As, as an otolaryngologist, I think we're all jealous that you get to be there for that moment. You know, <laughs> I know. I would we're, recommend. We know we're close. Yeah, I would say you guys should all come to at least one activation. It would be well worth your time. <laughs> I always tell the parents that I'm the mean one, right? And then the fun part is all with the audiologist and it's not fair. <laughs> so that's another reason why it's good to have a team because then we, we feel part of that too. So there you go. I try to take pictures and then send it to you on my charter and yep. epic. <laughs> awesome. All right. And so, Daniela, uh, what, are, what are your biggest concerns in that uh, initial uh, postoperative period? So right after surge, I think the, our main concern is, of course, infection. So we do antibiotics during the surgery. Um, there's no recommendation for antibiotics after surgery. But if you have a kid, like younger kids who have a tendency of having ear infections, I do send them home with antibiotics. I'll say I'm guilty of that. Um, but uh, I think the main thing would be hematomas as well. And that's why we use a, um, a massive dressing for these kids for about a day or so. And just kind of watch them have the family come back in a week and make sure everything looks okay. 
these kids usually heal well. Pain level is very low, actually. Um, main thing that they have, of course, nausea, vomiting, and just feeling a little dizzy if they're older, and all these things subside very rapidly. So I always tell the families that the first two days are kind of miserable, definitely for the little ones who can't tell you what's what's going on or or what they're feeling. But after that, it's usually they recover very fast. So you need to make sure that they're not having any infectious processes, no hematomas, and just because you asked that, the family's main concern, even years after surgery, is like, oh, my child bumped their head, you know, and it's little bumps are not an issue at all. So I think I only had problems with children when they had like severe trauma to the cochlear implant uh, area. And one kid that was very unfortunate, his sister actually elbowed him in the head exactly this was like maybe 15 years ago exactly on the coil side and the magnet popped out of the sleeve so that was a long 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 time ago yeah so since then a lot of things have changed and the cochlear implants are becoming pretty more sturdy i would say so that that would be mainly what's going on any any other concerns you have carrie i can't i can't think of anything else no, I mean, you mentioned just like the magnet and the coil side. I think from an audiological perspective, just like we see them a couple times within that first month. And sometimes the parents like, you know, even of the little kids, they just want the cochlear implant glued to their head, which is great for like stimulation and speech and language. But sometimes they try to put like a ton of magnets in and then it's just too much. You never want to try to pull the internal magnet out. So we have to say, no, no, no. Like, you know, it's meant to fall off some. So we just have to work with the family to find just the right magnet strength so they don't overdo it, but they also, it stays on and they feel comfortable right. with it. And so you use a true master dressing, right? You don't use mm -hmm. a glass cock. And then no, I don't. But I know of some people that do use a glass cock. And then how long do you have them leave it on for? Usually two days, a couple of days. And also not just because of the I like the fact that it's there's a little bit of compression there while it's healing, like the first couple of days, but also it makes it a lot easier for these kids to sleep when they're little. The parents are all, oh, can they sleep on the side? And, and like, it doesn't matter. If you have the message dressing there for the first couple of days, it's okay for them to do whatever they want to do because it's not going to be an issue, right? So I think it also helps with that. But I know of other surgeons that only use a glass cock, and um, I think that's fine as well. And what's, what's your pain control regimen? Just pain, plain Tylenol for the younger kids. It's very rare for me to send them home with narcotics. I do avoid ibuprofen if I can. And I would say that I have not had any issues with pain control. They usually do fairly, fairly well. Very cool. All right, so let's, let's kind of shift and, and talk about, uh, I guess maybe some philosophy and things like that behind cochlear implants. So let's start with, uh, with uh, you, Carrie, what, what do you predict will be different about cochlear implantation in 10 years? Um, I would predict everything will be on the inside at some point. I don't know how, you know, they'll plan on doing the, having the microphone or how, you know, where that will be, but I would leave that to the engineers to figure out. But yeah, I'd say everything in 10 years, 10 to 15 years will be on the inside. It's a great prediction. How about I you, Danielle? 
I have a different perspective. I think that we might be out of business uh, <laughs> in, an, in, <laughs> in the next uh, 10, 20 years, probably more, but I think we are getting there. There's so many amazing um, research projects and, and clinical trials with just uh, medications or trans, um, uh, and, and intracochlear uh, injections and genetic therapy. I would love to be able to inject these kids with something and, uh, and help them hear with their own nerves and not need us to do anything else. So I don't know, hopefully, I don't think ocular implants are going away. But I think that we're going to have a decrease in the number of surgeries that we're going to be doing. Hopefully soon. We'll see. I would be happy. I think that's the only thing. It's kind of a, a catch-22 because we want that, right? But maybe I'll be retiring by that time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Daniela, what do you think is our biggest shortcoming in CI care? I think it's disparities um, and the way our healthcare is, unfortunately, because um, we do see, and we actually studied uh, access to care and just the time that it takes for a child who has a public um, insurance compared to a child with a private insurance, it takes longer for them to get sometimes hearing aids and then from the hearing aids to go through the process and then get the, all the authorizations and then get the surgery. And, and then the kids with private insurance, you can actually go a lot faster. So I think that these um, disparities are, are probably one of our biggest barriers. And we try as much as we can as, we can, as a team working with our social worker and so forth. I mean, also to, to help with these disparities. And how about you, Carrie? What do you think is our biggest shortcoming? I would, along that same line, I would just say access to care. And we have a lot of families, even in Southern California, it's huge. Like maybe you don't realize when you look at a map, we have some families that travel from three hours away and we're the nearest cochlear implant center. So I think just the ability to get more done in one day or one travel time period for these families, that, that goes a long way. So I would just say access to care at this point. I love that. All right. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I've learned so much from both of you. It's so fun to have uh, two members of the team uh, talk about your different perspectives, how you guys think about things, your framework. Uh, I've learned a lot. Um, any, anything else you guys want to add before we uh, finish? Yeah, I think, you know, just a couple of things that I would like to add before. So uh, first, I, I feel very fortunate to be part of such an amazing team and we learn so much from each other. I mean, we, we just become better every day. I become, I feel like I become better every day because of them, really. I mean, I learn, we discuss and all these things. And, and not just that, I mean, being part of Sentac, which is such a terrific society where you can have all these discussions and all actually all the members of multidisciplinary teams like a cochlear implant team is absolutely fabulous. So. I'm, I just feel very, very honored all around. 
<laughs> I do too. I will echo that as well. And I feel like this, you know, hopefully this podcast will lead maybe more teams that are more medical model to maybe introduce a more multidisciplinary approach. I think that's so important. And then if you have that in your team and you have that at Syntac, it's, it's a wonderful world. <laughs> right. All right. Well, thanks to both of you. You are officially the first two guests of our new Syntac podcast. Thank you, Javen, for getting this organized. All right. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Have a good day. Weekend.